I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Welcome to the MVP Show. Today I've got Paul Clumsey. He's an IT veteran, 25 plus years experience, uh, specifically in the area of management consulting as well as a, a vast background in SharePoint. And it's very interesting listening to his story today, quite different than a lot of MVPs that are in the program. And I hope that you, you know, learn something new from Paul. I certainly did. Uh, so let's get on underway with the show. Remember, full show notes can be found at nz365guy.com forward slash 237. Now let's get underway. Hey, Paul, welcome to the MVP show. Uh, thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. Good to have you on the show, Paul. You're based in WA, is that right? Western Australia? Correct. Yes. So what's life been like there in the last couple of months for you? Probably two things. Like New Zealand, I'm in a fairly isolated place. So I think I've come to appreciate that I probably live in like the best place in the world right now, being such an isolated city, Perth, um, and incredibly busy because um, the stuff that I do has been uh, fairly front and centre in responding to a lot of the COVID stuff. So I've been busier than I ever have been. So very thankful for that. Okay, so to get some bit of background on you, just tell us a bit about the the company that you uh, run and, and the kind of business environment that's kind of put you in this very busy state recently. Uh, yeah, my company is called Seven Sigma. And yes, it is a joke. Um, it's kind of like that Simpsons episode where they formed the B-Sharps barbershop quartet and it got less funny over time. Um, but it was literally a beer conversation. We said, why go, why go six? Let's go seven. And so we've always been a uh, management consulting-esque technology organization. So we spent a very long time in SharePoint, got very good at SharePoint. That's just because I think the management consulting side helped a lot with, uh, with that. Um, and then when the Power Platform came along, we pivoted that way because it was sort of clear to me I got that same feeling. You don't get it very often, but in two, late 2006, I realized that SharePoint 2007 was just going to be mega huge, and that's what led down that path. And four years ago, it was just plainly obvious to me that Power Apps was, or the Power Platform was just going to go absolutely ballistic. So we sort of pivoted down that area, developed some skills uh, in that area. And a lot of the low-code stuff means you can respond to circumstances very quickly. So I was on a corona response team for a large uh, organization. And, um, you know, it, I was literally living the plot line of one of those movies, you know, where the Joint Chiefs of Staff are all in the room and then you get the odd, you know, the odd technical person comes in every so often and feeds them some info. And, yeah, so basically I lived that for sort of three months solid and literally, you, you know, you can't even plan projects around that requirements would change every half day. You know, there, there was a time where there was actually high-risk countries, you know, and there was all this focus on that. And then suddenly it was like, well, they're all high-risk now. All the work you've been doing suddenly has to change. So these low-code tools held up extremely well in that area and allowed us to respond incredibly quickly to the changing circumstances that we were facing. Very cool, very cool. Now, you said something here at the start, and I just want to clarify for our listeners. You said 
that you are a company that is management consulting led and uh, you know, when I was in Australia, I worked for a company, SMS Management Technology, and we were a management consultancy as well. And kind of like the system integrator, which is what Mike, most Microsoft partners kind of fit into the category of, was a different thing. And and it's you're the first probably um, other person I've come across that's kind of used this word management consulting in regards to still doing SI uh, work as well. How do you see that kind of key differentiation? Um, being management consulting led. Oh goodness, that could that could go on for a while. So I'll give you the quick version. Um, I do work in completely different discipline to IT. So for me, I do facilitation and what I would call sense making work for organisations and management teams on helping them crack the nut on some some hard problems they're dealing with. Uh, and that that was in areas like urban planning and um, oh, you know strategic planning, corporate retreats, all that sort of stuff. You know, if you've ever gone to one of those corporate retreats, sometimes I'm the guy that's helping to run them. So that's a completely different world than the technology world, and it put me into all sorts of interesting areas. And so that's management consulting. You know, helping organisations make difficult or complex decisions um, and facilitating that to happen. So um, even though, you know, there are some system integrators that, you know, you might get a few people that, I don't know, do some courses or, or you know, there, there are many agile coaches that might think they're management consultants, but I'd probably say if you haven't gone and done it completely outside your discipline, you know, in a pure kind of way, maybe that's a little bit different. Probably sounds, you know, a little bit um, snobbish and that's not my intent, but that, that's kind of what I mean by it anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is quite different, right? Because often SIs come from purely a technology background. They've come from, you know, if they've been doing for some time, probably network infrastructure days and then into server, client server operating systems, and then into the various apps that run on those platforms, rather than starting off with, you know, business challenges and and coming up with solutions of those that might include technology it might not i think one way to look at it is um years ago uh, one of my defining projects was a sharepoint project it was a failed sharepoint project um in the sense that you know pretty much for the the what they invested they didn't have a lot to show for it this is going back to 2007 by the way um but the upshot of that was i came across the work of a guy who more or less stated very profound for me at the time sounds kind of <laughs> quaint now, but he says, look, projects fail because of lack of shared understanding of the problem. Nothing to do with scope. Scope's just the symptom. You know, the root cause is lack of shared understanding. So the question you should be asking is not, how do you get this damn project in scope? And I think that's what the system integrators tend to do. There's this kind of um, bias. If you suddenly go, well, how do you get a shared understanding of the problem? If you suddenly think about what you would do to achieve that, there's not a lot of technology involved in that. And that's a whole different set of sort of competencies and tools in the toolkit that most organizations are not even aware of. And so, you know, I think an SI thinks, oh, yeah, I'll throw a project manager in there and a business analyst and off, we'll, off we go. And um, so it's almost partly a mindset thing driven by um, working back from that kind of question. Quite different, quite different. And, and, and you know, I've seen a lot of SIs want to want to develop management consulting type arms, and what I've observed, they seem to struggle in going that way into the mix rather than coming from management consulting into the IT, which you're seeing a lot of the the big companies like Deloitte's and EY and things like that now starting to move heavily into the space. 
but they've come from that management consulting background. Well, actually, they're, they're moving heavily into that space quite deliberately as a hedge against the SI. So they have a bit of a ceiling. We, we kind of snuck through. But if you think of it from a management consultant's perspective, you know, they, they charge lots and uh, they're, they're highly profitable. And if every SI, because the managed services industry suddenly disappears, because, hey, it's Office 365 now and cloud services, then um, they're naturally going to want to move up the value chain. And it's not in the interests of the big four to keep them moving up the value chain. So if they acquire technical competencies, then they sort of keep the SIs in that sort of layer where uh, uh, they would like them to be. And it's only the smaller companies like us that have niche skills that no one else has that allows us to sneak through that glass ceiling and kind of um, yeah, get into that area. So how did you discover, you know, discover stumble upon SharePoint back in the day? Uh, I'm old. So in 1998, <laughs> in 1998, I was the administrator of a document management system called PC Docs Open for all you old listeners. Now, PC Docs Open at that time was pretty industry leading up there with Documentum. And so I was familiar with metadata, document management and all of that sort of stuff. Um, the first version of SharePoint came along and, you know, to my eyes, I just kind of dismissed it out of hand. It, it, it really uh, was, was pretty basic. The 2003 version came out. I still dismissed it. However, we used it. I was working for an organization that, believe it or not, in 2003 managed to throw away the file server and, and go the document library uh, kind of regime. 2007 version came out, and this is almost a decade since I'd started in this space. I suddenly saw that it could do almost everything these enterprise document management systems could do when I started in 98. Um, not everything, but enough. There was enough there that I just was like, "This thing is going to go ballistic." So I'm going to start specialising in SharePoint because I've done document management before. And then I kind of naively sort of went because I've done a, you know, I've got a bit of an understanding of sort of the organisational side of things. I'm sure I've got a six month head start, you know, and then everyone will get good at it. So I'm better, better, you know, make use of this six month window I have. Well. That was probably more of about a decade, I think, just because of the exactly what you said about systems integrators. I think there was a bit of a blind spot there. And if you don't know you have a blind spot, you'll keep on doing the same things you'll do. So um, so that was really how it happened. I just saw that it was going to be massive, as simple as that. And I kind of opportunistically thought, I've got the right skills for this. I'll, I'll give it a go. Tell me tell me about books, writing books. I see you've, you've got a couple up there on Amazon. Um, how do, how, how how did you go down that path? And tell us about what your hindsight knowledge is after writing books. Uh, so the books have nothing whatsoever to do with SharePoint. They come back to that prob that that core question I said earlier. You know, how do you get a shared understanding of the problem? Because I had I had by this time facilitated lots of different workshops and been involved in some pretty major decision making exercises. Like one of them was a, a five hundred million dollar procurement strategy for a, a freeway um, to be upgraded, that kind of level of complexity. And um, so I ended up writing a book about my adventures there because I learned that a lot of the practices that were being done in IT and IT thought itself of being very sort of you know novel and modern, particularly some of the agile practices I was seeing. Um, a lot of that, the construction industry were hugely more mature than uh, what I was seeing in the IT industry, despite, you know, the prevailing kind of narrative. So I thought I've got to take some of these learnings in sense making and how to actually align uh, a group of disparate users and how to identify when you're dealing with a complex problem or one that's slippery. 
you know, uh, it was really, that was the intent. So the first book was called The Heretic's Guide to Best Practices because I was seeing some truly awful things done in the name of best practices, particularly in the SharePoint space. And, and to this day, you can see that they're tough problem, you know, they're tough projects to get right. So that was, uh, that was what that one was about. Um, the second book, I also found that when I, I was dealing with problems that are highly ambiguous, and I got to see how different people coped with stressful and ambiguous problems. And that led to the second book, which is uh, called The Art of Harnessing Ambiguity, The Heritage Guide to Management. Uh, I wrote them with a, uh, a guy who has two PhDs. He's like super ridiculously smart and has a background in academia. So, you know, um, if, if he's, he's the brains behind it, really. But um, so that was where the books came from. They were not motivated by technology work. And then also on a practical sense, I was like, if I wrote a SharePoint book, I would have to then write a new version every three years. If I write a, if I write a, like a, a business book, a management book, that one can sit there for a while. So it won't sort of date. So um, that was that. In terms of the process of writing a book, I don't think it was as bad for me as potentially others. You know, certainly there are times where it's such a big mental undertaking, but it was something that I wanted to do. And we actually wrote half of the book before we even decided that we'd publish it, you know. So we'd already just kind of been doing quite a bit of that, you know, intellectual um, scaffolding or, you know, it's almost like doing a PhD in a way, isn't it? Just you know, all the research and all of that. And because it was making me a better consultant, it was, it was helping me skills wise in terms of doing what I was doing. So, so that's really best answer I can give uh, on that one. I'd love to write a third book. We have plans for a third book. It's just, it's me. I don't have time at the moment because of the, uh, just the sheer action that's happening in the loco power platform side of the world. Tell me what kind of feedback I see you got some pretty high ratings on those books on Amazon. What type of feedback you had from people reflecting back after reading them? Uh, a lot of people, uh, I think it's, it's, it uses very the sort of humor that Australians and Kiwis would, would appreciate. So it's, it, there's a little bit of satire in there. So you'll get people saying um, uh, things like, yeah, it was sort of one of the more funny kind of management books, books I've read. Um, another review, which I think is pretty good, is it actually is almost a design thinking book before that term was even coined. So um, it, it really focuses on design really from where it actually originated. Like I won't go down the uh, kind of intellectual black hole of telling you the origins of the design movement from the 60s or anything like that. But um, so it was, the, yeah, the, the practicality of taking a lot of these ideas that have been around for a long, long time um, but, you know, they sit in journals and no one's ever going to read them. And some of them have a lot of value. So we, we thought we're going to approach this like you're sitting in a bar with someone and you're having a conversation. And um, so that was that I think has been the, the core of the feedback. I think they liked the accessible style and how we wrote and the ideas we pulled together. No one had really pulled those ideas together in the same way. Nice, nice, really good. Tell me about your MVP journal journey. How did it how did it start, and and what's it been like? Uh, MVP journey was an interesting one because I toiled away in the SharePoint world for literally fifteen years, and I'd never been an MVP. I still produced content, and you know, I had a blog called Clever Workarounds, which some SharePoint people of old might be familiar with. Um, but it was actually through my daughter. Really, um, I was doing stuff in the Power Platform. And uh, my daughter, who was uh, struggling with anxiety at, at the time, was doing a dead-end job because that was the only thing she could sort of deal with. And it was such a terrible job. It was to do a junk mail. So we made a deal. And, and I taught, I said, I'll, I'll pay her the same as what she's getting for junk mail if uh, she learned Power Apps. So 
I started coaching and teaching her. She got really good at this stuff and now has a career in this space. So she's done really well for herself and she's an MVP. So it's like a father-daughter thing. And But she's not the only one. I sort of, from that, I went, okay, Microsoft has this vision statement of empower everyone. And as a business owner, you don't have the same amount of time perhaps as other MVPs who might be employees or work at consultancies to create content. But so what I can do as a business owner is engage trainees and sort of take on people that have no formal uh, experience in this space and actually prove that vision, if that makes sense. So, you know, Microsoft have a lofty ambition of what they want to do. They've got their big, big, big goal of empower everyone. And we're like, okay, so my best way of doing that is proving that that can be done using their technologies. And so my MVP journey is really kind of helping the journey of other people, I suppose, um, you know, very much mentoring driven and, and teaching people not only how the technology works, but even how to cope with complexity that inevitably happens when you're delivering projects that involve change. So, uh, yeah, best answer I've got for you. That's good. Tell me a bit about, um, you, you know, you're talking about growing other people, which, you know, for me comes under that kind of heading of community and kind of outreach and bring others on the journey. What type of practical things have you, are you seeing as working effectively in that space? The most practical, well, okay, the, there's a difference between practical and effective. Um, the most effective way is apprentice-based learning where, um, you know, it's like Luke and Yoda, you, know, you, you, you think Star Wars. Um, so that is by far just that osmosis tacit learning that you get from when you're working on a real project, when you have people of experience also working with, you know, bright, enthusiastic uh, people who are you know, keen, starting on their journey and keen to learn. Um, but obviously that is not particularly scalable. Um, I think also encouraging other people to work out loud and almost you know, um, instilling the learning habit is probably the biggest thing. So even though you're working on projects, just getting people into that growth mindset where they actually enjoy learning because it's like a muscle, you know. I think, you know, learning is a habitual thing like anything else. And, uh, you know, you get better at it, you get faster at it. So, um, yeah, so I think just creating that environment that allows others to uh, perhaps bootstrap their journey quicker. Um, so, yeah, um, now, I, otherwise, these days, I think I used to write a lot of blogs. I spent years and years writing content because I enjoy writing. It's just not practical anymore in terms of the time, plus the pace of change with cloud services. So I think um, doing things in the visual mediums like YouTube is the other. Uh, if, if I'm going to make a knowledge artifact, it will generally be YouTube. Um, and then sometimes working with Microsoft on some of their initiatives as well. But, um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much how I managed to um, do that sort of stuff. Any advice for folks out there that are, you know, they might be working with Power Platform and might be on the Dynamics side, might be SharePoint, might be any, any of, anything in the BizApps ecosystem and they want to kind of, they think MVP might be something that should be part of their journey. What are you, what's your recommendations? That's probably the biggest thing. Um, I think... Uh, ultimately, if you think, go, go back to Microsoft's vision statement, they want to empower everyone. And so that, that means, and now if they're executing that properly, and I think they are, then literally every person in Microsoft has got that in the back of their minds in terms of when they're doing their localized, you know, sort of planning and, and prioritizations and stuff like that. 
And so therefore, if you can find a way to help them achieve that fundamental objective, however small, you will get noticed, I think. So that for me is, if yeah. It, so I think the MVP's changed a little bit. I mean, I, I've had it for three years, but I've certainly been close friends with many, many MVPs over the years. Um, I think in the it, it, its heritage was in technical competencies and technical skills. You know, we're back to almost that SI versus management consulting kind of paradigm again. I think these days in line, completely in line with their shift of objective, going back to the vision, I think it has changed a little bit to be more, um, have you, you know, have you found a way to empower someone else to go off and get fired up and, and you know, sort of learn something and become effective with these tools? Um, if you have, then that's, then keep doing it. And because uh, I think, yeah, you will get noticed and, and, you know, Microsoft will take that really seriously. Well, our time's flown. It's been, it's been great talking to you. I always like to, to, to wrap up with a few uh, kind of uh, random questions. So are you ready for your random question? Okay. Okay. If you could go back in time, what one thing would you tell your teenage self? Stop being such a dick. Start listening to people more. <laughs> I like it. Which famous person have you met? Brian May. I don't even know who Brian May is. How bad is that? Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yep. Didn't you watch the Bohemian Rhapsody movie? Name doesn't ring a bell. It's a freaking guitarist from Queen, dude. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. And I got to autographs and I sat and chatted with him for half an hour. That was uh, huge. Did you really? Was he the one that, like, in the movie? The long-haired dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very cool. So how did, how did that happen? Uh, he came to Perth and a friend of mine was working at the hotel he was staying. We were all massive Queen fans and had this dodgy website back in the you know, 1998. And he managed to convince him that this website was mega awesome. So the three of us got to interview him. <laughs> I actually also know uh, so cool. I also know Tim Staffel, who was the singer in Smile before Queen. And uh, he's a friend. And I've got an autographed Smile album on my wall. Fun wow. fact. Incredible. Probably the only Incredible. one in the world, maybe. <laughs> What have you bought that you love so much you'd happily buy it again? Oh, that one's out for less left field. Um, I don't know, really. That's a damn good question. Who, who's someone you really admire? Oh, there are many. Um, uh, I think uh, I won't. I won't name anyone in the uh, maybe in the technology space, but. Uh, my mentor who really set me on the management consulting path, his name is Jeff Conklin, and he wrote a book called Dialogue Mapping, um, and it was uh, to deal with complex problems. I really have him to thank for my whole other career. Um, so, uh, yeah, that would be the person I'd name. I like it. Would you rather live in a apartment in the city or a mansion in the country? Well, considering I'm actually pondering moving to an apartment in the city, um, it, it, from a practicality point of view, I'd say the former. But the reality is I think everyone would rather a mansion in the country. As long as the internet's good, it's pretty sweet for me. What was the hardest decision you've ever had to make? The hardest decision I ever had to make was to stop doing a startup that I had invested four years, considerable resources, blood, sweat and tears into. Um, Not because the idea was uh, bad, because the economy and the amount of effort and just the level of burnout and stress it was creating was too much. So that that was a difficult decision. Yeah, and fundamentally changed how I approach uh, projects uh, as well too. Another one of those deep. Most most experts come from being really stupid, you know, at a certain point, which the bigger the stupidity, the more the expertise. So I'm, I'm in that category with that one. 
Paul, it's been great having you on the show. Before you go, where can people check out what you're doing uh, from a social media perspective? Uh, LinkedIn, obviously, easy to find me. Uh, Twitter is just at Paul Colmsey, um, all one word. And uh, also have a YouTube channel with my daughter where we post various videos and bits and pieces. Uh, I do have a blog, but I don't really do the blogging thing much anymore. So uh, cleverworkarounds.com is another avenue to, to find me. And then just, yes, you can search for me on Amazon and my two books are, are there. Um, there is a website for the books. It's currently down right now. I just haven't got around to putting it back up again. So Amazon's the best place for, for books, I guess. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that show with Paul. If you have got any questions, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn Messenger. Best way to get hold of me. Full show notes for this episode can be found at nz365guy.com.com. Look at that, .com. No, nz365guy.com forward slash 237. Have a great week.